Morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Isn't it great to be back into... Oh, there's a lot upstairs, too. Welcome to all of you. It's great to all be back in together. Uh, our youngest son, Callum, he's nine. He loves asking questions about anything, actually. It doesn't matter what it is. He'll have a why question about it. But when it comes to faith and the things of God, he asks those questions, too. So trying to explain to him that, that, that Jesus lives inside him, he's kind of scratching his head and so does that mean Jesus is in my ear or, or in my mouth? Um, <clears throat> and then his latest question this week, he asked me, Dad, do you see if somebody dies wearing a clown suit? Does that mean they have to wear that in heaven for all that time? <laughs> Lots of, of great questions, and those ones are amusing and just give a bit of insight, I suppose, as to how his mind works. But when I stop and reflect, I've got so many questions too. I don't know about you. There's so much about God that, that I don't know. And I suppose the, the encouragement about that is there's so much more to discover. We can never know everything about who God is. There's so much more I can discover, and therefore there's more ways that I can learn how to love him with who I am. So I think it's great to come with that sort of mindset, isn't it? Whenever we come together like this, and, and my goodness, haven't we missed it? We come here to encounter the living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I haven't don't even let me get on to how to explain that to Callum. One God and three persons. But that's what we come here for, to encounter the living God, to praise him, to thank him, to ask him, to learn from him, to get more of a grasp of his love for us, and so to grow in our trust of who he is and our love for him. It's a supernatural encounter, isn't it? Good to be reminded of that. We're not just coming here like a, you know, some sort of a club, a golf club or, a, or anything like that. This is a supernatural encounter with the living God. That's what this is. And our encounter is collective. It's for all of us. We're all here together at this time, not by accident. But it's also individual. I wonder if you've noticed how much God loves variety. If we just take a look around, you'll see not a single one of us is the same. God loves variety. All of creation is made up of variety. We look different. We're different ages. We're from different backgrounds. We have different circumstances. We have different experiences. Just about everything about us is different. And yet God made us. And God knows us. And God loves us. And he knows the best way for us to live. He knows what's best for every single one of us. And whenever we come together like this, he wants to prompt us with those unchanging truths that we learn from him and from his word, to apply those to our individual lives. So we've already been participating in that encounter as we've sensed his presence when we've praised, as we've prayed, as we've just come with expectation that something 
something different happens whenever we come together like this. So let's continue that encounter as we see what it is God would have us learn. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the opportunity of coming back together like this. Help us to realize the difference it is when we come together like this. The privilege it is and what goes on. Thank you that we know that you are here, you're all around us and within us all of the time, but there's something, there's something different when your people gather together like this. Gather together in your name. Gather together because of who you are, because of what Jesus has done and with an expectation to know you even more. Thank you for your patience with us and your desire to continue to prompt us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to have a look at one of the letters that the Apostle Peter wrote, First Peter, and in particular a bit of chapter 1. And there's one sentence really that I will keep repeating that I think is really important for us to, to grasp. And it's from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter was writing to believers away from the land of Israel in what was termed Asia Minor at that time, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And these people had heard the message of the gospel. They had believed it. But because they were very much in the minority, they were socially marginalized, they were on the edges of society, and they were experiencing opposition simply because they had put their faith in Jesus. Their faith, where they were, had no real social acceptance, and they were, so they were living a bit like foreigners. That's the backdrop to the letter that Peter wrote. And there are similarities to that situation to today, aren't there? We're not maybe on the receiving end of active opposition, maybe not just yet, but it does seem in our country that's the direction of travel that we're going, doesn't it? But certainly a faith in Jesus is, is it's probably just tolerated at the minute. It's not by any matter of means mainstream. So there is something here, some relevance for all of us today in Edinburgh. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that sentence from Peter's com communicating three things. He's saying what to do. There's also, uh, uh, he's saying why we ought to be doing that. And then, thankfully, gives us a bit of advice as to how to do it as well. First, what to do. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The one word, grace, that's the central theme. 
God's grace is what makes the difference in the lives of followers of Jesus. And we'll unpack that a little bit more because that's most of the answer to the why question. So we've got grace looking ahead. You see, Peter says, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So looking ahead is part of the answer to that what question. Looking to the future, the future orientation of our lives is crucial. This, this life here, this present day, is not all that there is, far from it. So we're being urged to keep a focus on what is permanent as opposed to what is temporary. Keeping a loose grip on the present and a tight grip on the world to come. So having our minds focused on what is ahead. And it's so easy not to do that, isn't it? It's so easy to remain firmly in the present. Thirdly, the clear command is set your hope fully. Set your hope fully. And this, this involves our choice, yes, but it's not, it's not an action. It's not something that we do with our bodies. It's more an experience of our hearts and of our minds. Hope is something that's experienced. And in our culture of, of achievement, of busyness, of, of self-confidence, it'd be very easy for us to think to ourselves, right, <clears throat> how do I make this hope happen? How do I strengthen my hope muscles? I, I should be able to hope a bit better. How come they're hoping and, and I'm not? And that, that, that approach is totally the wrong way around, isn't it? That puts the focus and the onus on me and on my effort and not on God and on His grace and His future promise. I wonder if you've noticed the huge difference between saying hopefully and hopefully. Hopefully and hopefully. Hopefully is kind of hopefully, hopefully, hopefully Scotland will beat England. And they did. Hopefully it's kind of fingers crossed, um, hoping for the best, but not really quite sure what's going to happen. That's not what we're told here. Hope fully is so much more, isn't it? And that's what we're being asked to do. Hope fully, not hope halfway or hope moderately or hope a bit. Hope fully. And it's, it's hopefully wherever you're at. I said at the start, we're all individuals. We're all at different places. We're all in different circumstances. We're all at different stages in life. The encouragement is right where we are at that minute, hopefully there. Don't compare yourself to other people. Let your heart and mind be engaged in hope. Because grace is coming. Remember, we're looking ahead to the future. Grace is coming, so hope fully in that. So that's a bit about the, the, the what to do question. What about the why? Do you remember the verse? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the clue to the why question is the word therefore. 
I always remember Trish's dad used to say when he was preaching, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's it there for? So therefore suggests that what comes after that word is based very much on what came before that word. That order is very important. So let's just read what came before it. Let's read verses 3 to 5 in 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So in summary, while Peter's telling his readers to set their hope fully, he's saying that that hope comes after God's grace. The order is very much grace first, God's grace first, and hope comes second. And again, in our achievement, self-confident culture, that's crucial, isn't it? God's delight is not in what action we can achieve for Him in our own strength, but, but rather it's what we hope in what He can do for us in His strength. It's completely the other way around. God's grace, then our hope. And what we've read there about grace is amazing, isn't it? And probably something we ought to just read and, and think about every single day of life. That addresses something, that addresses the past, it addresses the present, and and it addresses the future. A reminder, therefore, of what God has done, what He continues to do, and what He's going to do. In the past, it's by His great mercy we've been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that little short line, that's the center of our faith. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus came and willingly died for all of us because of the sin that we had. And God raised him from the dead. And that opened the way for that renewed relationship for anyone who chose to be, to, to be made again, a relationship between God and man. And also God defeated death. We spoke about or we sang about that in one of our songs. God defeated death at that time once and for all, the ultimate enemy. You know, without that reality, we might as well just all go home. But with, with that reality, is that something that really excites you, that really burns inside you, that really makes a difference in, in who you are and the way that we live? That's the centrality of the gospel. That's what God has done. And that then affects the present, and now we live with great expectation. That's what we've read. Now we live day by day by day for as many days as we've got here. We live that with great expectation. Our lives, lives today have purpose. Our lives today have meaning. Our lives today have direction. We have a sense of identity. We know who we are and we know whose we are. Our identity as children of God and co-heirs, it's, it's incredible just to say that, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, that's who we are. That's our identity. That is certain.
and future. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And that's the culmination of God's plan. And that's why we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to, a life of continual encounter with Jesus. Without grace, our faith means nothing, and with it, it means everything. And with, without a hope in the future, without, without the promise of heaven, eternal life, whatever words we want to use, although we don't know the full extent of all of that, we believe it. Without the promise of that, we don't have any hope. We'll just be here for 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever number of years, and that'll be it. But we do have that with it, with that hope of the future, with that hope of eternal life. My goodness, that changes everything. The language of inheritance makes it all so personal, doesn't it? It's not just a treasure that we can kind of go and discover. It's an inheritance for us that's guaranteed, an inheritance for us that's kept in heaven for us. That's, that's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Kept in heaven for us, kept safe for us. And through our faith in God's power, we're protected here. We're kept safe here too in order to claim that inheritance when the time comes. And the fact that we're protected by God suggests we need to be protected and therefore protected from something. And that idea is expanded on a further answer to the question, why? So far we've seen that it, the answer to that why is because of the centrality of God's grace to, to our faith, because of the certainty of our inheritance in heaven and because of the culmination of God's overriding salvation plan of an eternity encountering him. And now we're brought back to the present again and given another answer to the why question. And it's this, it gives us a context for our trials and our suffering. Let me read verses 6 and 7 in 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials and suffering, in case you haven't noticed, are an inevitability in life, in, in all of our lives. And what Peter is urging here is to have a wider perspective whenever we're going through that. These difficulties most definitely are never diminished or undermined. Such experiences will, will be devastating at times. Instead, they're viewed with our ultimate hope in Christ in mind. Instead of looking at this kind of perspective, we're urged to broaden that perspective. And difficult though they are, devastating though they are, they're temporary. They're temporary whilst our future inheritance, our future hope is permanent. 
And we also see that persevering through these, fire, these trials serves to strengthen our faith. It keeps our focus on God as opposed to ourselves. Faith in Him grows and, and misplaced confidence in ourselves reduces. As fire doesn't destroy gold, it's, it it's rather destroys the impurities within it. It's used to refine it. And so trials don't destroy us, but they serve to strengthen our faith. They serve to remind us of where our strength ultimately comes from. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've considered together what we should do. We've had a look at, at why we should do it, and there's actually lots more to that why question that if you have a look in the rest of that, those verses in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll find out yourself. And what about considering now how we ought to do it? Here's the answer Peter gives to the how. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In recent years, there has rightly been a significant increase in, in the wider conversation around mental health. And 2,000 odd years ago, when Peter wrote this, that's what he was referring to. The mental health of his readers. He was talking about what goes on in here. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. It's interesting, isn't it, to contrast how we uh, approach our physical well-being and, and our mental well-being. Our physical well-being, we, we protect our bodies, we put clothes on them, we wash them, we, uh, we feed them, we rest them, we keep them away from danger, we're walking down the street, we don't just willy-nilly jump into the road, we keep away from sharp things and hot things and all that sort of stuff. And I wonder if the approach is the same with our minds. I'm pretty sure Peter was bringing this to the attention of his readers because that focused attention wasn't necessarily the norm. Because you can't see what's going in there, it's easy to ignore it. And I think Peter knew too that our actions, our attitudes, our, our choices, our words, everything, physically speaking, originates in our minds. And therefore, the well-being of that place is paramount. Now, there were two images Peter used here to the original, the original uh, readers. First, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a good old-fashioned term, isn't it? And the picture he had there was in people in that part of the world, they wore these big long robes, big flowing robes, and you, know, you could walk along quite regally with your robes on, but you couldn't really run. So girding up the loins of your mind meant you had to reach down and grab it and tuck it into your belt and kind of, so you, you created a wee pair of shorts so that you could actually do something. So the picture was walking against running. I suppose today we might compare it to lounging around in your pajamas and your slippers to putting on your running shorts and your trainers. So the encouragement is to be proactive and not reactive, to be, to be prepared, to be ready, to know that there's something to do, to be active. 
The second image alludes to the dulling effect of alcohol on, on their minds. Be sober-minded, that's what he was talking about. And whilst the dulling impact of alcohol is obvious and still applicable today, it's not the only thing that can numb our mind. It's not the only thing that can fill our mind and, and therefore distract our mind from, from where we ought to be thinking. Do you know, we're surrounded by so much entertainment today, aren't we? Netflix and Amazon and, well, all sorts of things, films, box sets, social media, news feeds, all of those things, they're so easy to go to automatically. Somebody said having a, a smartphone in your pocket's like having a slot machine there. You can't help but temp and go and have a wee go at it every now and again during the day. So those things, they can have an, a numbing effect on what's, um, what goes on. It's not just the area of, of that sort of, in some ways, mindless entertainment that can numb our mind. Anything that takes the place in our minds of thinking about the value and the wonder of God's grace, of thinking about the future hope, about thinking about that inheritance, anything that fills that up too much, that is a problem as well. It could be work, it could be reading books, it could be watching sports, it could be gardening, it could be computing. Any of those things, if that's all that's in our minds, that can create that distraction and that problem. I guess the point is to know ourselves well. Out of those list of things, where, where are the things that we tend to just let our mind go and be distracted? And instead of allowing things to be done to us, we want to choose to be proactive in our thinking, to evaluate things carefully because we can see clearly, because we are actively looking after our minds. And while this may mean avoiding some things, it may also just mean how, how do we learn and how can we involve God in some of those thoughts, in some of those activities that we're doing? So I'm not saying none of us should ever do, we shouldn't be doing computing or we shouldn't be reading or we shouldn't be outside. I'm not saying that at all. How do we involve God in our thoughts? An example of that, the other weekend I was following the Medvedev Nadal final. Did anyone else watch that? Pretty good. And I was thinking, I suppose because of this was in my mind, I was being proactive and thinking, how do I involve God in my thinking as I watch a tennis match? And I guess the first thing was, you, you can pray for these guys. I was thinking about that. And, it, and then thinking to, you know, just being impressed by the ability that they've got the uniqueness of each human, the, the God-given gifts that they've got. And then the thinking just progressed. The, 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 the crowd was pretty partisan, wasn't it? The crowd was very much for Nadal and not Medvedev. And I'm thinking, what, what is there about human nature that you want to teach me there? And I quickly got the picture just of, uh, of, of the, the people voting whether to free Jesus or Barabbas and just thinking about the impact of crowds and Anyway, there, that, there's an example of how that tennis match led me to thinking about those things. So how, how can we do that more? I'm not coming from any position of being an expert by any matter of means, but we can do it. If we invite God into our thoughts and minds and into those everyday situations, you better believe that he will come. He will come. We're given a bit of advice in other part of Scripture where we read this. 
as far as what we ought to be putting our minds on. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's pretty good practical advice, isn't it? And I guess as I was thinking of, of that, I thought, you know, the opposite has to be true as well. Don't fix your thoughts on what is false. Don't fix your thoughts on what's dishonorable and wrong and impure and disgusting and deplorable. Don't think about things that are detestable and unworthy of praise. This, proactively, this proactivity of thought will, will serve to help us. Instead, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What to do? Set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we do it? Well, because of what God has done, because of what he continues to do, because, because of what he's going to do, because of that hope that we have in the future. How do we do it? We just we take control a little bit more about our minds. We recognize that we have choices. We recognize that we can do it. And you know, all of this, all of this is part of loving Jesus, isn't it? All of this is part of our worship. Worship really is just giving more and more lordship to Jesus of our lives. And that's a lifelong process. That is a lifelong process. You imagine your life is like a, a hotel filled with loads of rooms. It's going to take a lifetime for you to open every single door and give that over to Jesus, to his lordship. But that's what worship is, granting Jesus lordship over all of our minds, every part of it. And that's why loving Jesus, that's the foundation of, what, of who we are as church, with a capital C. That's the foundation. And being family comes out of that, doesn't it? We can help each other to open those doors. We can see things in one another that maybe we can't see ourselves. Being family is because we're connected by what Jesus did. We're connected by the hope that we're looking towards. We are the greatest family on earth because of that connection. We're gifts to each other. We can support each other, we can challenge each other, we can love each other, we can have accountability with each other. That's the way we're designed. If I sit at home in my house and don't interact with anybody, I'm not as likely to grow in my faith as if I'm interacting with other people, as if I'm being vulnerable, as if I'm asking questions, as if I'm allowing people to ask questions about me. That's what we're about. And all of this overflows, whenever we are doing that right, all of this overflows into loving Edinburgh. This incredible grace that we've received, this, this amazing hope that we're looking forward to, why wouldn't we want to be passing that to other people? And yes, we can do good things. We can, do, uh, we can serve the poor. We can serve people with, with problems and give things and resources that they don't have and we do have. That's great. But the motivation is more than that. Remember, we're not just about today. We're about the future. We're about the grace that we have received. And we're about the future hope that we will embrace.
That's what we need to keep coming back to, isn't it? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray together. Father, saying thank you seems inadequate, and yet that's what we say. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for your mercy shown to us. We thank you for Jesus' willing sacrifice. We thank you for raising him from the dead. We thank you for the future hope that we have. And Father, we pray that you would fill us even more today. Help us open a few more doors of our lives to your Lordship. Help us open ourselves in, in vulnerability to one another that little bit more today. And help all of that spill over into this city that so desperately needs the news, the truth, the wonder of your grace and the hope that that brings. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.